see y'all. I um, read the paper this morning, something I do not recommend, but I do it once in a while just to start the day off on the wrong foot. But they had an, had an article in there this morning about uh, high schools and the schools in Whatcom County used to have a program where the first responders, police, sheriff, firefighters, would eat lunch in the cafeterias at the school. And uh, that's going to end next year because it's creating too much anxiety and stress in the kids. You know what I was anxious about in high school? Acne. Yeah. Right. Know what I mean? I'd wake up in the morning, go to the mirror, and oh no! Because while I was sleeping during the night, the pimple monster came by and sprinkled <laughs> pimple dust on my face. You'd get up, you'd rush in there, and oh no! How am I going to cover that one up? You know? That's what you're anxious about, not the police being there having lunch. That's right. But that's today. Everybody's got to be based on feelings now. We left off on uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 14 is where we're going to start today. Romans chapter 1, verse 14. And we're still in the introduction. We're still in Paul's introduction to the church at Rome there. Surely we'll get into the meat of things. Let's have a word of prayer. Thank you, Father, for the day we have, Lord, to study your word, Father. Pray, God, you'd bless the lesson, Father. And pray, God, again today you'd bring many visitors like you did last Sunday, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look at verse number 14. We were talking about Paul, and he's, he's telling about how he had wanted to come all this time, and he he's, he's really loves the church there, wanted to come, was always hindered. We looked at that some. And uh, verse 14 Paul says, I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and the unwise. I am debtor. This doesn't mean that, um, that they had bestowed any favor over Paul. That word debtor is really uh, his strong word of saying, I'm under obligation. I am obligated. I am driven to... Spread the gospel both to the Greeks and to the uh, barbarians. He was under an obligation to preach the gospel. And Paul calls this obligation, he, he calls it a debt. God forgave him. Remember, Paul looks really down on himself. I'm the chief of all sinners. I persecuted the church. And God saved me. And God gave me a mission to do. And I'm a debtor. To do, I'm obligated to do what God has asked me to do. I'm indebted to Him. I have this debt to pay off. We saw last week in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, how God had chosen him to be a vessel to preach to you know, the kings and the, the Jews and the Gentiles. God had a mission for him. God picked him out. He saw what he was doing. This guy's really zealous. Wish I could turn him around. He did. On his road to Damascus. Paul, turn around. Amen. I'm going to use you. In this verse, we also see the dual classification of all people, which was so fashionable in the world at that time. And it is today, too. Everybody's got a label. Everybody has to have a label. You know, it, it, was, the, uh, it was the thing of the day. The, the Hebrews classified folks as Jews and Gentiles, two types of people. 
The Romans classified the entire world as Romans and pagans. The Greeks, uh, 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 the Greeks called everybody Greeks or barbarians. There was other dual classifications. You know, there was the wise and the unwise, male and female, free man and slaves, smoking and non-smoking, regular and extra crispy, paper and plastic. All these dual classifications that folks had was fashionable back in those days, and that's how they identified people. You, were, you fit in one of these groups. That's what you were. Verse 15, so, because I'm a debtor, so, as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. Now, the Roman church was Christians, were they not? Jews and Gentiles, but they, they came up from that, that verse in Acts where they heard Peter preach, and they, they went back to their home city, and they started a church. But there's lots of them that had friends. There's folks in this city that weren't saved. There were Jews that had the problem of Judaism. Still had to combat that, as we discussed before. So, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you at Rome also. I am ready. You know, God said, Paul, I'm going to use you. Paul says, what would you have me to do? I'm ready to go. He didn't have to go to college first. God sent him through the College of Hard Knocks. It's a short program, but it gets you real smart real fast, and that's what he did. He was ready to preach and to serve. Look at Acts 21, 13. Paul was ready to suffer. Acts 21, 15. Thirteen, X chapter 21, verse 13. Then Paul answered, What mean ye to weep and break mine heart? For I am ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And in 2 Timothy 4, 6, we saw that he was ready to be offered. You know, he didn't stop uh, uh, preaching because he was afraid. I mean, how many times did Paul get beat up and shipwrecked and everything else? Read 2 Corinthians. All these things he went to, uh, we even think he was killed. That would have stopped me. You know, I'm quitting. You know, uh, Paul kept on going. Got back up. Kept going. We're in Romans chapter 1. Uh, and, and Paul feels this overwhelming obligation. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 16. 1 Corinthians chapter number 9, verse 16. For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe, yea, woe is uh, unto me if I preach not the gospel. Paul said, I have to preach the gospel. It's laid upon me, necessity, burden. This overpowering obligation that he felt. And ironically, in God's irony, when Paul finally did go to Rome, he went there as a shipwrecked prisoner. Uh, Paul didn't think he'd be going there at the government expense. Uh, but he was. 
The Roman Empire had to find a ship for him, had to detail an escort, and he entered the city as an ambassador in bonds. Spurgeon once said, when, when our hearts are set on a thing and we pray for it, God may grant that blessing, but it may be in a way that we never look for. You shall go to Rome, Paul, but you're going to go in chains. Be careful what you ask for sometimes, huh? Amen. Now, let's look at verses 16 and 17. We're entering into a transition period now. Paul's finished with his introduction. He's getting ready to, to get into the message now, the, the bulk of his epistle. Uh, the old Texas preacher said, business is about to pick up. Things are going to start happening now. Verses 16 and 17. Let's, re let's read those. He said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, The just shall live by faith. Here and in verse 17, Paul announces the great theme of his message here in this epistle. It's uh, salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. The great theme revealed in the gospel message. God has the power to save every soul that accepts him, no matter who you are. Greek, barbarian, wise, unwise, anybody. You know, God doesn't label people except lost and saved. He wants to grow the ones that are saved and wants to save the ones that are lost. That's God's labels. He didn't care anything about you. Anything else? There's no other criteria except what my son did on the cross. So Romans 1.16, Paul spoke of salvation, but what are we saved from? Well, foremost, we're saved from the wrath of God, we'll see in verse 18. Unless there's something to be saved from, there's no point in talking about salvation, is there? Got to be saved from something. When you're out there swimming and you're drowning, what are you saved from? Drowning, okay? When you're doing something silly and dangerous, you're saved from yourself sometimes, you know? Uh, you're saved, you're, you're preserved. Now, the city of Rome, the Roman Empire, thought it knew about power. I mean, they ran over the entire world, known worlder, and they captured it. They, they conquered it. They had power. Uh, but despite all their power, they didn't have the power to make themselves righteous before God. The gospel's power is to bring salvation to everyone who believes. Period. A lot of the book is about the period part. There's nothing else added. Believing is the only requirement to the Jew first and also the Greek. In the Gospels, Jesus told the disciples, Jews first, and then the Greek. Jesus himself, Jews first, 
than the Greek. Verse 17, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. That word for, in verse 17, uh, let me give you some, some grammar. I'm not very good at grammar, but I looked this up just because I thought it was interesting. That word for is called a coordinating conjunction. You can leave today and tell your friends you learned something in church. Amen. A coordinating conjunction. When you say, thus and so, for, and you go on with it, you explain it, well, that's a coordinating conjunction. You probably could have went all day without knowing that, but, but now you know it. So, you're better people today than you were when you came in, right? I mean, you know something. Uh, but Paul's saying there's a reason for what I just said. For or because there's something to what I just said. There's a reason there. There's a reason why I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And this reason is stated in this verse. It expresses the substance or the doctrine that's contained in the epistle. The meat of what this thing's about. Therein is the righteousness of God revealed. Let's talk about that. This, this section of this verse has had some, some um, uh, issues with um, interpretations. There's different interpretations of this. Uh, some folks uh, interpret this, and this is one of the most important statements right here in the entire epistle, the righteousness of God. We need to understand that. And Paul wants to establish this doctrine. Some interpretations have said the righteousness of God means the attribute of God as translated um, righteousness or justice. And what is meant here is uh, supposing that the gospel is God's way of showing men's, uh, His justice in His way of saving men. His justice. But the design of the gospel is not to exhibit the justice of God or the attribute of justice. What's it about? The love of God, isn't it? Uh, we can see, oh, this guy's going to get what he deserves. That's not what God's all about. That's not justice. The gospel's about love. John 3, 16, we saw that. Look at Ephesians 2, chapter 2, verse 4. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. It's not about justice, it's about love. But God, who is rich in mercy for His great love wherewith He loved us. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16. God's love. Now our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God and even our Father which hath, what? Loved us and hath given us eternal consolation and good hope through grace. Look at one more verse. Look at 1 John chapter 4. Verse number 7. 
1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that knoweth not, knoweth not God, for God is love. So salvation is not about justice for God. It's about love that God has for us. A second interpretation talks about the uh, uh, goodness of God. God's good, but they think the righteousness of God is this benevolence that God has. But that doesn't support the message here. Gospel is about God's love. Amen. And the righteousness of God is about God's love. The, the phrase, the righteousness of God is equivalent to God's plan of justifying men. We'll talk about justification in another chapter or two. It's, it's amazing. It's important to know. That's the plan. How God justifies man in sight of the law, acquitting them from punishment. That's an important thing to understand. That's the crux. That's the basis of our salvation. So the righteousness of God stands opposed to man's plan of justification. That is, of works. God's plan is by faith. And the way which that is done is revealed in the gospel. The purpose planned by God to accomplish this is to treat men as if they were righteous. We'll talk about this when we talk about justification. Man's attempt is called works. I'm going to pound this down. Things we do in order to get to heaven are called works. And they don't work. So there's these two systems. And these two systems have plans and they differ. And this official shows that man's plan won't justify you in the eyes of God. The plan of God is the only way. Now verse 18, let's read that. Well, let's not read it yet. Let me go a little bit more here. So, so the discussion now pertains to, when we read verse 18, the wrath of God, we, we look at that, and here we are standing alone in the universe, and we have to wonder how can mortal man be just with God? What about me? What do I have to do? And Paul's going to show us. This is what he calls the righteousness of God. God's plan. God's plan is distinct from all other plans. It originated by God. It claims God as its author and it reveals God's glory. It's called His righteousness. And it's by the way he receives men as righteous. The same plan is foretold in various places where the word righteousness is nearly synonymous with salvation. Look at, uh, hold your place here, look at Isaiah 51 for a minute. Isaiah 51. Isaiah 51, look at verse number 5. 
My righteousness is near, my salvation is gone forth, mine arms shall judge the people, the isles shall wait upon me, on thine arm shall they trust. Look at verse 6. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look upon the earth beneath, for the heavens shall vanish away like smoke, and the earth shall wax old like a garment, and they that dwell therein shall die in like manner, but my salvation shall be forever, and my righteousness shall not be abolished. Salvation didn't just pop up in the New Testament. God talked about it in the Old Testament. It's not something new. It's been here. Look at chapter 56 in Isaiah, verse number 1. Thus saith the Lord, keep ye judgment and do justice, for my salvation is near to come and my righteousness to be revealed. This is God's plan. God saves men by the merits of Jesus Christ and what He did on the cross. Not what we do to try and impress God. It's what Christ had already done. Back in our text here in Romans chapter 1 verse 17, for therein is righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. It's revealed, revealed from faith to faith. When you accepted Christ as your Savior, your faith began. You had enough faith to trust Christ. It shouldn't stop there. Faith to what? More faith. As God exercises your faith, your faith builds gets stronger, increases, and you share it. Habakkuk 2.4 Behold, a soul which is lifted up uh, is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. We discussed that a little bit last week. The just shall live by faith. Now we transition again. Verses 18 until chapter 3, verse 23 God talks about the unrighteousness of all people. The wrath of God is revealed in verse 18. We'll read that in a second here. But why is there wrath? What's that all about? The unrighteousness of all people. And we'll look at this a little bit. And that takes up a big, big bulk of this epistle. Let's look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Things were getting along fine until Paul brought that up, huh? I I long to see you. I've been trying to get there over these 20-something years, and I keep getting hindered, but I'm going to get there as soon as I can. And the wrath of God is against all people. Quite a transition from the introduction to what what this message is all about, this whole epistle. In these chapters, we're going to read God's indictment. You may know what an indictment is. You're charged with something. There's an indictment of both Jews and Gentiles. These passages, these chapters lay out Uh, For us, the scene of a courtroom, if you will, a scene of a courtroom where you're there and you're facing a judge and you're on trial 
and there's a persecutor, a prosecutor there, and there's a lawyer, there's an advocate there, and we're in court. Man's on trial. And Paul argues here the guilt of every man, woman, whether Jew or Gentile, as they are seen in the eyes of a righteous God. That's how we need to be seen. How does God see me? We worry about, and I'll get to that later on here, how we view God. Now, God's not a salad bar. You get to pick and choose what you want, what you like, what you don't like. Like churches, I like this religion because I can do thus and so. I can drink and smoke and say bad words. Or like this religion here because it does this. Huh? We try to put God in our view. Let's look at God's view towards us. Now, I'm going to look at the uh, next few verses. There's three, category, uh, three categories that God's going to look at. The Gentile. And that's going to be verses uh, 18 through uh, 20. Let's read those. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness because that which, they, which uh, may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath showed it unto them, for the invisible things of him from creation of the world are part clearly seen, being understood as the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. Another category is the moral man, or the good man, or God says the hypocrite. Look at Romans um, chapter 2, verse 14 for a second. We're going to come back and look at these verses in depth here, but look at chapter 2, verse 14. So the Gentile had the witness of God built in, the witness of creation, the moral man who looks down on everybody. Huh? Uh, look at Romans 2, verse 14. For that when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these not having the law or a law unto themselves, which show the work of their law, written in their hearts, their conscience, also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or excusing one another. The moral man, the hypocrite, God says, you have a conscience, and you didn't accept me. You have a conscience. And the Jew is guilty. Look at uh, Romans chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. What advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because unto them, who's them? The Jews, unto them, were committed what? The Word of God. They've had the Word of God. They've had it, didn't do anything with it. They're guilty, God says. So this is the indictment. These are the charges. There's nobody that can escape. As things are, human beings are in the wrong with God. When we get saved, what's the first thing we got to do? We need to acknowledge what? They were sinners. That's hard to do. It's hard to get somebody lost. 
It's hard to get somebody to admit, I'm a sinner because there's always somebody worse, isn't there? Well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. So we have to acknowledge that we're sinners. The moral law of life, the way God built us, we were left to the consequences of our freely chosen course of action. We have a free will. We have the freedom of decision, don't we? We have the freedom to plan and do what we want to do. And unless our direction is changed by divine grace, people will find themselves in hell. Broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, not the off-ramp, the freeway. Everybody's going there, and unless you change direction by some divine occurrence in your life, unless you make a decision to get saved, unless you decide that I don't want to go there, I'm making a decision to get off here, that's where you're going to go. And God doesn't force us to get saved, it's an it's a decision that we make. So Paul's aim here is to show uh, the whole of humanity is morally bankrupt. If you don't believe me, watch the news. Morally bankrupt, unable to claim a favorable verdict at the judgment seat. If your name's not written down in the book of life, guess what? Read Revelation. So, Paul's verdict is that people desperately are in need of mercy and pardon. And in this book of Romans, chapter 1 here, the rest of chapter 1 that we're going to read, uh, the moralist of the day, the greatest need was the uh, great uh, uh, contemporary paganism. They look down on the pagans, the heathen, the Gentiles. They look down on them. What is the cause, Paul asks, of this appalling condition that is developed in this world? We could ask the same thing today. It all arises from the wrong ideas about God. We're going to see that. And it didn't just happen. I can look back into the late 50s and 60s. Things were different, but they were still the same. Didn't just happen. When did it happen? Genesis chapter number 3 is when it happened. The knowledge of the true God was always accessible, but men and women closed their minds to it. We're going to read about that. Instead of appreciating the glory of the Creator, they gave glory to the created thing. And that glory belongs to God alone. Worshiping created things is called what? Idolatry. That's right. Proverbs 14, 12 says, There's a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Now let's look at parts of this chapter now through uh, the rest of chapter 1. We're going to go through this. 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. Verse 18, the greatest danger facing the human race is not COVID-19. It's not financial crisis. It's not all the number of other things I worry about. It's the wrath of God. That's the greatest danger facing mankind. The wrath of God. People sometimes object to that term. Some folks say, oh, God's coming back soon, and boy, is he mad. He's not mad. God's wrath is completely righteous. People want to weaken the biblical concept of God's wrath. Uh, They want to equate it with our human anger. Do we get angry? Sure we do. We get angry uh, because of personal reasons or, or revenge or whatever it is. We experience anger and emotion. God doesn't do that. God's wrath is based on righteousness. He doesn't say, oh, I'm going to zap him. God didn't do that. We do that. God's wrath is not just to punish sin. God's wrath is the holy revulsion of God's being against that which is the contradiction of His holiness. Let me say that a different way. God is against what is against His holiness. You get that? God's against what is against His holiness. That's what God's wrath is about. God's wrath is revealed from heaven. The idea is simple and sobering. God's wrath is revealed and the human race deserves His wrath. Wrath is not revealed in the gospel. The gospel is about saving righteousness. Let's look at the rest of this verse. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth. That word hold means hold back. Hold down the truth. That's what that means. Keep back or hinder against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold down the truth. Block it. Look at verse 25. I can just scoot right across the page. Look at verse 25. Who are these men who change the truth of God into a lie and worship and serve the creature more than the creator who was blessed forever? Amen. God's against those that have converted his word to something else, to have stopped his word or added things to his word. You look at various churches and I'm going to use the word religions. They're impossible things that people have to do. So this portion of the book is to demonstrate the absolute necessity of the good news that God brings through salvation. Hold down. People stifle the light. It still remains in them. When we have this still, small voice. You ever heard that still, small voice in your head? Of conscience, we 
First thing you do is you, disre you disregard that. Next, that still small voice is defeated by our flesh. My, I want to. And then it is systematically deadened. We don't hear the voice anymore. Conscience is seared. We don't hear that part of it anymore. Thus the truth which God left in men and women, instead of having free opportunity to develop itself, is obstructed. It's squashed. It's hindered. It's not there anymore. Look at verse 19. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. Did God put man on earth with no iota that there was a creator around? No. God gave man that inward, whatever it is, that there's a God out there. God was made manifest to them. God had showed it to them. Look at verse 20. For the invisible things of Him from creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. Amen. We see the beauty of God's creation, and we know that man didn't do that. You can find the most beautiful scenery you want to find, and you can, you know, you don't look at the plaque. I wonder who made this great mountain. Well, God did. Amen. So there's no uh, doubt in our minds, or shouldn't be, that God is here. God made this, is what He's saying. And man wants to hold that back. If God's divinity, if God's deity is shown in creation, His full deity is embodied in Christ. Talks about eternal power in the Godhead. Look at uh, Colossians chapter number 2. Verse number 8. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in Him, who's Him? Jesus. Amen. Dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead. How? Bodily. So, the creation of the world it says, are clearly seen, being understood by things that are made, being perceived. Man should be able to grasp enough of God's nature to prevent the error of confusing any created thing, like I said, as being created by somebody other than God. The perception of God and His deity enables man 
to conceive the existence of God and make him free from idolatry. If you have a God and you can worship, why would you worship a stone or a little statue or something? That's what he's saying. God's right here. We can see what he did, his handiwork. Why would you want to worship something less than that? So they are without excuse. All of their depravity is a voluntary departure from the truth, is what this verse is saying. But God's deity, His essence, is revealed to where even the most unsophisticated person can understand it. Even the most unsophisticated man can see, this is beautiful, and see God. We'll stop here. And we'll pick up next week in verse number 21. Let's have a word of prayer. Thank you, Father, for the lesson today. Father, pray God to bless the services to follow. Pray God to give pastor the power to preach. Pray God to bring visitors, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.